0: Click on Donate. Coming up on The Boo this morning at 1130, Making Contact looks at what is being done to safeguard the watersheds of Mexico City, the natural water systems that provide water to one of the largest metropolises in the world. And now, next, stay tuned for Health Watch. Today, Ellen Goldsmith is speaking with Dr. Steven Sandberg Lewis, naturopathic physician, author and teacher on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and gastrointestinal disorders and health. Stay tuned. KABU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KABU in accordance with the requirements of the Communication Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KABU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, unless otherwise noted. The KBU Board of Directors meetings has been rescheduled to take place on Monday, May 21st at 6 p.m. The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their
1: healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment.
0: Hello, and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, your host every second Monday of the month. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis, naturopathic physician, teacher, and author of the medical textbook, Functional Gastroenterology, Assessing and Addressing the Causes of Functional Digestive Disorders. Today, we're speaking about the gut, and specifically SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, what it is and what its role is in a variety of gastrointestinal diseases and other disorders. Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis has been practicing naturopathic medicine for a long time, since 1978, te- and teaches gastroenterology at the National University of Natural Medicine here in Portland. He's also in private practice at 8 Hearts Health and Wellness here in Portland. He lectures extensively, presents webinars, podcasts, and interviews on issues of digestive health. In 2010, he founded the SIBO Center at N U M, which is one of only four centers in the United States for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth diagnosis, treatment, education, and research. He continues this work in his present practice. Within gastroenterology, he has a special interest and expertise in a variety of issues: inflammatory bowel disease, including microscopic colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, including post-infectious IBS, s- small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, hiatal hernia, gastroesophageal and bile reflux, otherwise known as GERD, biliary dyskinesia, and chronic states of nausea and vomiting. Dr. Steven Sandberg Lewis, welcome to Health Watch. Thanks. So let's start out by telling our listeners what SIBO is and why it's important to know about.
2: Small intestine bacterial overgrowth is not so much an infection. It's really an overgrowth of friendly flora or commensal intestinal bacteria. But it's sort of like the the type of thing that they say in realty. Uh, They say location, location, location. (laughs) So uh, normally the small bowel has very low numbers of bacteria, less than a thousand per gram of material, whereas the large intestine you expect it to have trillions in that same volume. Uh, When the small intestine starts having the more similar numbers to the large intestine, you have a real problem because the small intestine is where everything gets absorbed and it's not designed to have large amounts of bacteria. So All kinds of toxic and inflammation-promoting substances from the bacteria can get into the blood and affect the liver and the brain and all the tissues in the body. In addition, uh, the bacteria make gas from carbohydrates. and And the gas can cause all kinds of symptoms of pain, distension, Diarrhea, constipation, etc.
0: So, this is a, a relatively new um, diagnosis. That you know, for years, uh, IBS was kind of a a, a um, it was a diagnosis of exclusion, really, and it wasn't until the introduction the um, knowledge of SIBO came in that these two started to come together. So what was your, how did you get interested in, and how did you get um, exposed and introduced to SIBO as a, as a concept and as, as a way of treatment?
2: So it seems like it's new, but it's been around since at least the 1970s when the machinery to test hydrogen and methane uh, in, a, in SIBO first got created. Um, so what is that? You know, we're going on 50 years since we've actually had a test for it. And the ability to culture the fluid in the duodenum, the first portion of the small intestine, that's been around during that same period of time. And that's another way to diagnose it. So it's not really new. And the, the treatments for it, Uh, dietary treatments began as early as the 1930s. So it's not new. What's new is us really researching it. Uh, Since the year 2000, there are well over about 1,400 studies published in journals. Before that, there were just a few hundred. So the, the interest has multiplied dramatically just as the interest in the gut flora has, you know, exploded in the research field as well.
0: So, but the introduction and the the knowledge and the research done on SIBO now really informs uh, your treatment of many other diseases that may seem unrelated to the gut, such as fibromyalgia, thyroiditis, hypothyroidism, uh, restless leg syndrome, just to name a few that seem completely unrelated to, to gut health. Can you talk about that relationship and how uh, C- the diagnosis of SIBO and the treatment of it can influence?
2: Yes, and, and researchers into neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's have found direct links. Uh, in fact, researcher Datis Karazian at Harvard uh, in his lectures likes to say that Parkinson's begins in the gut. Mm. He says that, that uh, SIBO is the first sign of Parkinson's decades before it actually starts to create signs in the central nervous system. So why are these things related? Um, what we're finding in our symposium this summer, we have a yearly symposium in June, uh, is all focused on underlying causes of SIBO. We're finding that um, all types of common conditions um, make people much more prone to have overgrowth. And then the overgrowth fuels inflammatory processes that can be everywhere in the body. So you can find conditions you know, in the central nervous system. You can find conditions in the liver, such as Uh, Cirrhosis of the liver really is associated with bacterial overgrowth and what's called hepatic encephalopathy, where people get really crazy. And it's just because their livers are not able to detoxify the uh, ammonia that comes off of digested protein. Um, And there are great treatments for that now.
0: So talk about the causes of SIBO. What, what What are the underlying
2: causes of it? So I think the, to, to organize it, probably the best um, set of underlying causes, um, the first one would be in women, endometriosis. Wow. And most people don't even think there's any, they, they would never think of that. That would be the last thing they would guess.
0: You mean that endometriosis can cause SIBO?
2: Endometriosis is, in my practice, is probably one of the biggest causes of chronic, SIBO that just doctors scratch their heads. They don't know why it's not going away. They have to treat it over and over. And that's because if a woman is menstruating, and instead of just menstruating out through the cervix and the blood's coming out that way, in endometriosis you can have what are called endometriomas, or little bits of the same kind of tissue that's on the inside of the uterus that bleeds on a cyclical basis. You can have that on the ovaries, which is right out in the peritoneal sac, on the tubes. You can have it on the outside of the intestine, occasionally on the inside of the intestine. It can be on the uterus. It can be on other tissues in the abdomen and pelvis. And every month when there's a cycle, you'll have bleeding there too. When you have bleeding into the peritoneal sac, that causes what we, what we call chemical peritonitis just like having appendicitis every month so it's that's like an inflammation
0: of the of the pelvic region around the, the intestine
2: yeah of the lining of the pelvic and abdominal structures um the same thing like i said that's the same thing that causes the intense pain and symptoms of of acute appendicitis is when it when it starts to inflame the the peritoneum. In that case, you know, it also becomes what we call bacterial peritonitis, but chemical peritonitis because blood is irritating to those tissues. It causes a lot of pain with menstruation, but in addition, the body has to respond to that blood and that irritation, and often what it does is it makes adhesions. And adhesions are little bands of scar tissue. They're on the outside of the small intestine and large intestine. They're not on the inside. So they attach formerly unattached portions of, say, small intestine to small intestine. And so instead of having a nice loop of small bowel that has a nice gradual curve to it, you get a hairpin turn, Mm. or you get a thickening on the outside, or you get a twist. And then the bacteria normally controlled in part by a brisk um, uh, muscular response that we call the migrating motor complex or the housekeeper wave of the small intestine, Mm -hmm. normally flushes things through, bacteria and fiber and other material, um, whenever you're fasting. So four to five hours after you've finished eating, if you don't eat again, say at night when you're asleep, you get this housekeeper wave that goes through every 90 minutes and moves food and bacteria through. Um, the small intestine, I, I have a course called Advanced Gastroenterology, but I wanted to call it the small intestine is not small <laughs> because the small intestine is actually 18 to 20 feet long. No other part of the digestive tract comes close to that. It's called small just because it's narrower than the large intestine.
0: So this hairpin turn you talk about, like, or this twist that the adhesion um, creates in the small intestine then starts to impede that housekeeping ki- movement because yep. things are supposed to move through quickly, right? So stagnation then is a real big cause. Can that be? Yes,
2: anything that that affects motility or movement of material through the small intestine is a risk factor. And endometriosis is just one that I run into all the time.
0: You also talk about, I read in in some articles you've written about, the um, infectious gastroenteritis, which is a stomach ache, right, that you get from some kind of uh, bacteria, Mm -hmm. correct? So uh, these simple things that people, quote, get over, they don't really get over it? Does that, because that's a precursor too for SIBO?
2: Yeah, that's another really important one. And that's what we usually call post-infectious IBS, which is, it can be viral, it could be giardia, it could be bacterial, Um, things that people call food poisoning, gastroenteritis, or traveler's diarrhea. And the bug doesn't last very long. You know, the bugs are self-limited. The immune system takes care of it usually within days to weeks. But sometimes the immune system, about 10% of the time when people get these things, uh, the immune system will produce antibodies against a substance that's present in these organisms called CDTB. That's a lot of rhyming (laughs) letters. And uh, it stands for Cytolethal Distending Toxin B. And this toxin that is produced by many of these organisms can provoke the immune system of the person's body to make antibodies against that toxin. And unfortunately, those antibodies also can destroy some of the pacemaker nerve cells in the small intestine that normally control the movement and the peristalsis and the cleansing wave.
0: So for people who um, experience this, Infectious gastroenteritis of sorts, travelers' diarrhea, Giardia, etc. What what is what can be done to quote prevent this damage to the small intestine motility? Uh,
2: you mean at the time that you have food poisoning,
0: I guess, or afterwards? You know, like what would people say? Would they still have? They would feel quote better, but they're still not quite a hundred percent. What? Are, You know what would bring someone in to say hey i've got to work on this and take care of it so it doesn't become more chronic
2: Hmm. well actually the only thing that we have so far is to prevent food poisoning (laughs) (laughs) you know so make sure you your food is is not contaminated Um, my guess would be that activated charcoal at the time of symptoms could reduce the toxin, because that's what charcoal does. It absorbs toxins. Mm. So taking orally taking uh, activated charcoal, the, the type that's made for oral use, for internal use, um, is probably a beneficial thing, but we don't really have research on that yet. Some, uh, some doctors actually take rifaximin, which is a FDA-approved prescription antibiotic, it's, it's, uh, approved for tra- teaching, treating, excuse me, traveler's diarrhea. And so they'll take that when they're traveling, uh, just in case they start to get sick, they will take a three-day course of it. Um, and I don't know that that's been proven either, but it's, it, it's FDA approved for that use. Um, but yeah, once people start having symptoms of SIBO, those would be symptoms of bloating and distension in the abdomen pain or discomfort and changes in stool consistency or frequency constipation or diarrhea once they start having that um, if it's from if it's from the antibodies that were produced by the immune system then what I've been doing with my patients is working to help their immune system balance out that, autoimmune response, uh, we usually use a combination of at least three things. One is uh, fish oil, because fish oil, along with vitamin D, is the second thing. And the third thing is low-dose naltrexone, which is a prescription low-dose medicine. All three of those help to improve what are called the regulatory T cells. They're sort of the conductors of the orchestra of the immune system and they help to balance out the immune response. So um, we've been doing that with patients as well as treating them for the SIBO to reduce the numbers of bacteria and then using something called a prokinetic to help move things through the small intestine more efficiently.
0: So how how do you test for SIBO? What is the way to really determine is this SIBO or not?
2: There are three ways to test. The first is if someone's having an upper endoscopy with a gastroenterologist, where they're going to be, someone's going to put a scope in their mouth looking at their esophagus, stomach, and duodenum, um, they can take a small sample of fluid from the duodenum and culture it. That's called duodenal aspirate culture. So that's one way. And the advantage of that, of course, is you actually get to see what organism is overgrown. Mm. The other, the other methods, you don't get to see which organism it is. There are about 12 to 14 common ones that can overgrow. Um, the next way is called glucose breath test, where the person, after a preparatory diet and a 12-hour fast, will drink a glucose sugar solution uh, after taking an initial breath sample. Um, by the way, so when bacteria create gases such as hydrogen or methane in the gut, they get absorbed into the blood, and then they are exhaled when they go through the lungs, they are exhaled in the exhaled air. So you can measure in a breath sample how much gas is being produced by that glucose that they drank, and a sample of breath is taken every 20 minutes for three hours, and you see what the curve is. Uh, the third way, and the most common way, is a lactulose breath test. Same kind of breath test, three hours long, but they use a different sugar called lactulose. And we think the advantage of the lactulose is glucose is absorbed in the first one or two feet of the small intestine, so it it's absorbable. So you're only gonna see if there's bacterial overgrowth at the very top, the first couple of feet of small intestine, but it's 18 to 20 feet long, So if the bacterial overgrowth is lower down, you won't see it. But with lactulose, lactulose is unabsorbable. Humans can't absorb it. Bacteria can break it down and make it into hydrogen or methane or even a third gas called hydrogen sulfide. But uh, it's going to go all the way through the small intestine and even through the large intestine.
0: So you have these higher levels of hydrogen or methane that are exhaled. And, and and that does that determine what kind of treatment, if which gas is higher, or how do you determine how to then move forward with treatment?
2: Yeah, so we see different patterns with the gases. Some people only have hydrogen over overgrowth, the bugs that make hydrogen. Some people have methane overgrowth as well, and some have both. And depending on the pattern and which gases are present, we know which herbs, and which prescription antibiotics are more effective at treating methane versus hydrogen or both. And we look at absolute numbers and get different ideas. There's also, besides prescription antibiotics or herbs that help to reduce the bacteria, we also have something called elemental diet that we sometimes use, which is a sort of a modified fast. It provides everything a person would need to live for two to three weeks, but they're just drinking a powder mixed with water that has totally, fully digested nutrients in it, and uh, there's nothing in there that feeds the bacteria, so it starves the bacteria.
0: So you do that for two to three weeks, and mm-hmm. then, but then you have to eat again, right? <laughs> ah, therein the lies the rub. So what then is a, a diet that in, uh, kind of ensures that the sibo does not come back?
2: Yeah. So diet and prokinetic herbs or prokinetic prescriptions are always part of the prevention phase. And the prevention phase is really important. And of course, it, if you can treat the underlying cause, we're going to have uh, two hours of talks on endometriosis this summer and try to get better at at really managing that well uh, and other, un- other underlying conditions. But um, Diet is always a a really important piece of the prevention. And diet can also be used just to relieve symptoms. For some people, it can relieve their symptoms almost 100%. Doesn't get rid of the problem, but it it does help prevent it from coming back along with things that improve the housekeeper wave of the small intestine after treatment, whatever the treatment is. Um, So there are four different diets that we commonly use. Uh, The first one is called the SIBO-specific diet, or the SIBO food guide, which Dr. Um, Allison Seebecker came up with. It's a combination of the specific carbohydrate diet from Elaine Gottschall and the uh, low FODMAPS diet from Monash University in Australia. The second diet we use is just the plain Monash University low FODMAPS diet. That one especially for vegans and vegetarians. The SIBO food guide does not work for vegans and vegetarians. <laughs> um, and then uh, another diet that we might use is called the Cedar sinai diet which Dr. Mark Pimentel came up with down at Cedar sinai Medical Center in California. It's the most lenient liberal of all the diets. Um, and they all, they all have their merits depending on, on the person. And, and that last one also works well for vegans and vegetarians.
0: So why do those work well for vegans and vegetarians? I know a lot of the, the, other, the first diet you talked about is more heavy on the meat, of course, right? And well, low, low carbs.
2: Yeah, the specific carbohydrate diet and the SIBO-specific food guide uh, those are grain-free diets in large part. Some folks, if they're underweight, will add in white rice or other non-gluten grains. Um, whereas the Monash University low FODMAPs and the Cedar Sinai actually contain grains and potatoes and you know starchy vegetables and other things that aren't normally part of the food guide. Um, so it allows it none of the diets contain beans, which makes it hard for vegans. Uh, but um, but they they have more grains and uh, starchy vegetables, so they make it more possible.
0: So you talked about when sometimes when people do the diet, they get a relief of symptoms. And there seems to be a, a little bit of a confusion I see in patients where, The feeling that my symptoms are gone means I'm all better, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily, correct?
2: Well, as long as the diet is something you could follow forever, you may not care Mm -hmm. whether it's gone or not. Um, And for some people, they actually have recurrent SIBO. It's going to come back over and over because they have an underlying cause that can't be corrected, such as something called superior mesenteric artery syndrome, which is a, uh, a change in uh, the configuration of the small intestine and, and an artery that presses on it. So we don't really have a fix for that. If we find out that someone has that, we might have to use a diet You know, pretty much forever. All the diets are used in part uh, long term, but we usually try to liberalize them over time. Some people might have to be more strict if we can't treat the underlying cause.
0: And when you're treating SIBO, are you seeing a reversal of endometriosis or a a lessening of um, symptoms in
2: Mm, it? No, no. It doesn't work that way for endometriosis because that's got a life of its own. Right. And that's why the treatment uh, has to address the monthly bleeding directly. Um, So unfortunately, it's one of those rare situations where a naturopathic doctor might want to suppress menstruation because normally we wouldn't ever want to do that right. um, but we have to stop the bleeding if we're going to stop the continual scar formation
0: so it's a it's a deep and complex subject that m- moves through all the systems in the body from the brain and mental emotional to reproductive to
2: liver liver
0: and pain issues so
2: extremities
0: yeah so it really sounds like you know if people are having some mild symptoms digestive symptoms as you discussed earlier bloating distension um,
2: diarrhea diarrhea, constipation
0: constipation, which is very associated with IBS that it it would behoove them to check out do I have SIBO do you think or not
2: really? Well, that's that's the thing about um, SIBO and conditions that are less understood by the average physician is that they'll they'll work on ruling out diagnosing everything they know about, and if they run out of things, they'll just say, "Well, you have IBS because mm-hmm. we ruled out everything else." Like you said, diagnosis of exclusion. Um, SIBO is. Is quite complex, and the average doctor is might might be able to do really well with simple cases, but the more complex cases, um, it can get to be, you know, kind of a nightmare for the doctor. So, uh, yeah, there are certain doctors that are you might say SIBO literate uh, in Portland, especially that know how to do that.
0: Right. So you want to seek one of them out, and one of them you can seek out is Dr. Steven Sandberg Lewis, who um, who works at Eight Hearts Health and Wellness Clinic. And um, Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, how people can reach you through your website, right?
2: There's the website, eighthearts.org.
0: With the number eight. Or you can call his clinic at 503-894-9118. He sees patients in his clinic as well as his team working with um, patients there. Uh, you can also purchase his uh, medical textbook, Functional Gastroenterology, Assessing and Addressing the Causes of Functional Digestive Disorders, on Amazon. And he's told me that lay people read that book if you're really, really interested and you want to get into the, the depth of uh, gastroenterology. So we have been speaking with Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis, naturopathic physician on SIBO and our health. Thank you so much for being with us here today.
2: You're welcome, Ellen.
0: And thank you for listening to Health Watch today. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, your host. You can listen to this episode and more episodes of Health Watch online at kboo.fm slash healthwatch.
2: My name is Lauren. When I was 14 years old, I got in trouble with the law. Instead of entering the juvenile system, I enrolled in the Tigered Youth Peer Court where I was judged and sentenced by my peers. They held me accountable and I learned how my actions impacted my future and our community. Tune into Prison Pipeline to hear my story. That's Prison Pipeline, May 14th at 6.30 p.m.
1: This week on Making Contact. Everybody will win or everybody will lose. We are all in the same boat. We are all in the same mountain. We are all in the same aquifer. The metropolitan area of Greater Mexico City has a population of roughly 21 million people, each with a need for water. But Mexico City is water-stressed, and some residents only have access to running water for a few hours a day. In areas with the most damaged water infrastructure, where residents rely more heavily on water delivery trucks, some families limit their use to 30 to 60 gallons per day. Now, the average American uses anywhere from 80 to 100 gallons of water per day. And not unlike certain parts of California, the Mexican capital is sinking from the depletion of its aquifers. In response, the Mexican government is drilling for water over a mile below ground. In this episode of Making Contact, contributor Maria Dorr looks at one conservation program in Mexico City's Water Forest.
2: Just go over to see where cars coming.
1: Let's just go around this corner. We're going first to Guajumulco, which is an Indian community on the Balsas watershed, which faces Cornavaca.
2: We're riding with Jurgen Hoth of Conservation International, winding on back roads through communities in the mountains some five miles north of Cuernavaca and 40 miles south of Mexico City.